when it comes to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you know, one of the central themes that we see him bringing up time and time again is the kingdom of God. For example, it was at the beginning of his earthly ministry when the Lord Jesus declared the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he was teaching about the kingdom of God. But, but then also uh, during the Last Supper, on the night of his arrest, as the Lord Jesus broke bread and then gave the cup of communion to his disciples, that's when the Lord Jesus assured his disciples that he would not drink the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God had come in its fullness. We also find him after his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. That's when the Lord Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples by many infallible proofs. And according to Luke, he actually spent 40 days from his resurrection until his ascension, teaching his disciples about the things that pertain to the kingdom of God. And so from the, the, the moment of his earthly ministry beginning uh, until his ascension into heaven, Jesus Christ constantly taught about the kingdom of God. It's here in our text today we actually, where we actually find the Lord Jesus helping his audience to understand that the kingdom of Christ had already come at that point in time. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the kingdom of Christ is actually embraced by faith. Secondly, we'll learn that the kingdom of Christ is examined by faith. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the kingdom of Christ is experienced by faith. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually addressing the kingdom question, which has been presented by a group of Pharisees. And as you make your way to the 17th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I should begin by reminding you that the Lord Jesus was actually traveling in the midst of Galilee and Samaria as he was making his way to the holy city of Jerusalem, where then he would be tried for the false accusation of blasphemy and then crucified for our sins. And as he made his way to the temple, you know, he took the time to minister to people along the way, which included a group of Pharisees who actually stopped him and asked him about the day when the kingdom of God would finally arrive. And with that, I want to consider Luke's account of this conversation, which we find here in Luke chapter 17. If you would look with me there, we'll begin reading at verse 20. Here Luke writes, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now here in these verses, we find this group of Pharisees. They're approaching the Lord Jesus with a question about the coming kingdom. And just to be clear, you know, it'll help you to know that this group, which is known as the Pharisees, this was actually a group of religious conservative Jews uh, who were, you know, committed to the Old Testament scriptures. You know, they had a high view uh, of Old Testament scriptures. And not only that, but they also embraced the oral traditions, which led them to engage in, in a number of, you know, external rites and religious rituals, which included ceremonial washings and fastings, prayers, as well as the giving of alms. 
And, and for all, all these reasons, you know, these Pharisees were oftentimes puffed up with pride. They really believed themselves to be better than everyone else because of their strict observance to the scriptures and their strict observance to the, you know, external rites and religious rituals. And so they, they kind of placed themselves up on a pedestal and then they would just look down on everyone else because they weren't as religious, you know, as the Pharisees. At the same time, you know, they were completely committed to the Old Testament, which included the Old Testament prophecies, which pointed to the arrival of the Messiah, who, according to the Old Testament prophecies, would usher in the kingdom of God. And so, you know, being committed to the Old Testament scriptures, they were very committed to the prophecies that pointed to the coming kingdom. And with this as their focus, you know, they were longing for the day when the Messiah would finally arrive and establish his throne right there in the holy city of Jerusalem. And this was especially true during the first century because, you know, uh, the Israel Israelites were being occupied, uh, and, and Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire during this period of time. And so the Jews were really longing for the arrival of the Messiah. They were waiting for the day when the King of Kings would finally arrive and overthrow the Roman Empire by casting every evil Gentile into the fires of Hades. That's what the Pharisees were looking forward to. With all that being the case, you know, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that this group of Pharisees approached the Lord Jesus in order to ask him about the day when the kingdom of God would finally be established. Knowing that the Pharisees were always attempting to trap the Lord Jesus with all of their trick questions, you know, it's my guess that they weren't coming with an honest question. I'm assuming that they were, you know, coming with a loaded question by which they were trying to expose the Lord Jesus as being nothing more than a deceiver who was failing to fulfill the messianic prophecies. You see, there were followers of Jesus who truly believed that he was the Messiah. Others questioning whether or not he was the Messiah. And I'm guessing that the Pharisees were determined to expose, you know, the, their belief, which is that Jesus is not the Messiah. And so they, they came along and presented this question about the kingdom of God. And it's my guess that they're like, hey, where's the kingdom? If you're the Messiah, where's the kingdom? Why, why didn't you bring the kingdom with you? They wanted to know when Jesus was going to usher the kingdom of God to the earth, you know, if, if he truly was the Messiah. From this, they were appealing to uh, several prophecies. For example, uh, it's in Daniel chapter 7. There we find the prophet Daniel uh, pointing to the coming kingdom by declaring, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed this prophecy found in daniel chapter 7 it actually points to the day when the promised messiah would arrive and set up his throne right here on the earth and it's at that point in time when the kingdom of christ will be established from that day forevermore This is similar to the prophecy that we find in Isaiah chapter 9, where we learn about the day when the promised Messiah would arrive and and he would set up the throne of his father, David. And at, 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 at that point in time, you know, he begins to rule and reign over his millennial kingdom. It's at that time when he will establish his kingdom with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And no doubt that the Pharisees were considering those prophecies as they approached the Lord Jesus with these questions about the arrival of the kingdom. 
The Pharisees, I believe, were using these Messianic prophecies as a biblical basis for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ because if he is, in fact, the Messiah, where's the kingdom? They were looking for a Christ who would come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. They were waiting for a Messiah who would set them free from the tyranny of Rome. And therefore, they were actually going out of their way in order to ask Jesus about the kingdom of God. And I believe it was to try to expose him uh, as not being the Messiah. Now, Luke doesn't provide us with the precise question that they actually presented. And so this is just pure speculation. But the chances are they were probably asking him the reason for why he was failing to establish the kingdom of God. It's also possible that they were simply inquiring about the timing of the kingdom. They wanted, to, they wanted Jesus to lock down some sort of prophecy about the arrival of the kingdom so that if they saw that not come to pass, they could say, aha, gotcha. You said it would come at this time and it didn't, so now you're exposed. We can't say for certain what, what the precise question was, but you know we know enough about the Pharisees to assume that they were trying to trick him and trap him. But regardless of the exact kingdom question that they had presented uh, to Christ Jesus, you know what they were failing to remember was that the Old Testament, you know, actually includes two branches of messianic prophecies. The Old Testament uh, includes messianic prophecies that point to a Christ who would not only establish the kingdom of God here on the earth, but, but the Old Testament also includes a branch of prophecies that point to a Christ who would first suffer the death penalty before being crowned king. Uh, for example, it's in Isaiah chapter 53. There we find the prophet Isaiah describing the sacrifice of our Savior. And it's there where Isaiah writes, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but the, with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now here in this messianic prophecy, we find the prophet Isaiah describing this day when God the Father would sacrifice his only begotten son for the sake of our salvation. It's also in Daniel chapter 9 where we learn that, that, that the Christ would come and suffer the death penalty. He also uses that terminology of being cut off. He would be cut off before being anointed as king. And in light of these prophecies, it seems to me that the Pharisees that we find here in our text today, they were failing to recognize that Christ would first be crucified before being crowned. He would be crucified first, and then he would be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That being the case, it's important for us to realize that the establishment of Christ's kingdom actually takes place in two main phases. The first phase took place at the time of his first advent when the Lord Jesus came to the earth through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And after living a sinless life, our Savior then went on to fulfill the messianic prophecies that point to Christ's crucifixion, followed by his resurrection, and finally 
his ascension into heaven. Now that the Lord Jesus has fulfilled those prophecies that point to the first phase of his kingdom, now we're waiting for the day when the Lord, uh, the King of Kings, that is, will finally uh, return and set up his kingdom right here on the earth as we, as we look forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, it's in our study next week. Uh, we're going to spend our time considering the second coming of Christ because Jesus shifts his focus from those Pharisees to his disciples, and he begins to talk about the time of his second coming. And as we continue to make our way through this incredible chapter, you know, we're going to learn about the day when the Lord uh, will, will return and the King of Kings will establish his millennial reign as he rules over the earth from the throne of David with a rod of iron. But for now, I want to spend our time considering the way that the Lord Jesus was answering the Pharisees by shifting their focus from the second coming, which is what the Pharisees were actually asking about, and he shifts their attention back to the first phase of Christ's kingdom because those who fail to embrace the first phase will then miss out on the second. With this in mind, if you will, let's back up here in Luke chapter 17. I want to draw your attention back to verse 20. Here Luke writes now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Now what in the world does that mean? The kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. You know, when we get into our study next week, we're going to see Jesus talking about how, the, how people are going to observe the second coming. How the, It's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west, and people are going to see it all around the world. And, and so what does this mean? How, how can you say it's not going to come with observation and then turn around and say it comes with observation? Well, in order to grasp the point that Jesus here is making... It'll help us to know that the word observation here is translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it's used of those who engage in a hostile examination. It's a hostile examination, or you might call, call this an interrogation. As we consider this sense of this Greek word translated observation, it seems to me here that, you know, the Pharisees were actually attempting to interrogate the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like they, they came with their, with their lamp in hand, sat him down in a dark room, shined the light in the face, and tell us, when is the kingdom coming? And the Lord says, you're not going to get answers this way. You're not going to see the kingdom if this is your approach, There's no doubt in my mind that the Lord Jesus here is informing the Pharisees that their attempt to interrogate him wasn't going to force the kingdom to come any faster. And not only that, but he's also helping them to understand that those who want to enter the kingdom of God must first embrace the king by faith in the cross of Christ. You want to see the second phase of the coming kingdom? You better accept the king during his first phase. Can't help but to think about all the people that I've ever heard, you know, say things like, yeah, well, I can't wait to stand before the throne of Jesus because I've got some questions for him. You know, he, he allowed me to suffer in such and such a way, and I've got some real questions to ask him when I get there. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, that, that's the way it's going to go down. You're going to go stand before Jesus Christ and say, how could you? How, how dare you? And you're going to interrogate Christ Jesus? I don't think so. According to the scriptures, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think that's how it's going to go down. 
So be careful when you think that at some point in time you're going to be able to interrogate Jesus about what he allowed here in this world. No one is going to enter the kingdom of God forcefully. No one is going to see the kingdom come if your whole goal is to interrogate the Lord Jesus Christ. No, you'll be on the receiving end of the king's punishment. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of God, and it's not by interrogation. No, instead, it's by embracing the king by faith. This reminds me of John's account of that day when Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor, decided that you know, he had the authority to interrogate the Lord Jesus Christ. We actually find this in John chapter 18. Here we learn that Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Here we find Pontius Pilate thinking that he had the power to interrogate the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord turns around on him and says, listen, if you, if you really submit to me as your king, then you will hear my voice. You will embrace what I'm teaching. Listen, everyone who receives the truth of God's word is going to embrace the king of kings. Because God's word points us to a life of submission to the king of kings. And everyone who embraces the king of kings will then gain access to the kingdom of our king. One reason for this is because, listen, it's God the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Isn't that incredible? God the Father takes pleasure in giving the kingdom to those who will simply embrace King Jesus by faith. You want to enter the kingdom? Don't try to interrogate the king. Instead, just trust in him. We would all do well to make sure that we've placed our faith in the king of kings because those who trust in the king of kings have embraced the kingdom of Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, the kingdom of Christ is not only embraced by faith, but the kingdom of Christ is then also examined by faith. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, with this as the focus, let's continue making our way here through Luke chapter 17. I, I want to consider, the, again, the conversation uh, and, and, the, and the answer that Jesus presents to these Pharisees. If you will, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 20. Here again, Luke writes, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here 
or see there. Now I want to stop right there. I want to take some time to consider the point that Christ Jesus was actually making here. I'll remind you, the Pharisees were probably interrogating Jesus by asking him to explain the reason for why he was failing to fulfill the prophecies about the millennial kingdom of Christ. They wanted to know, you know, why, why he wasn't bringing the kingdom in, you know, with his arrival. And after assuring them that their inquisition wouldn't cause the kingdom to come any sooner, he went on to assure them here that the initial arrival of the kingdom wasn't open to their doubt-filled examination. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God isn't coming because of your interrogation and you're not going to see it with your doubtful examination. You see, the first phase of Christ's kingdom is only seen by those who will simply believe in him. In order to prove my point, I should direct your attention to the word see, which is found twice there in the beginning of verse 21. That word see was translated from a Greek word which speaks of uh, that which is perceived with the eyes. And and so it's a natural form of seeing. But at the same time, the same word refers to that which is perceived through paying attention. Or or also, uh, the same word can also speak of that which is experienced through examination. So, So... when we consider, you know, this concept that, that, that they're not going to say, see here or see there, I, I think what Jesus is saying here is that, listen, you know, you can do your best to carefully examine everything, but if your whole desire in the examination is to simply dismiss it, well, then you're not going to see it. Jesus here is essentially informing these antagonistic Pharisees that the kingdom of God won't be discovered by those who spend their time searching with their natural eyes, all with the goal of looking for every reason to simply dismiss it. And it certainly won't be found by those who examine the evidence all with this unbelieving bias because they're going to look for any reason to simply dismiss the claims of Christ. In order to further grasp my point, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in the, epi- in the epistle that he sent to the church there in Rome. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the wisdom of this world, well, the wisdom of this world always leads people to worship the creature rather than the creator. The wisdom of this world will always lead us away from the true God and to any other God. The reason why is because our carnal mind will always embrace any unreasonable argument that explains away the evidence which would actually lead us to submit our lives to our Savior. To prove my point, let's consider what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 8. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here Paul declares, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who live their lives according to the sinful desires of their carnal mind, 
they're already at the outset at odds with God. From Jump Street, they're already in, in a battle against God. And the reason why is because the carnal mind is always opposed to the will of God. The person who tries to use their carnal mind in order to examine the claims of Christ so that they can determine whether or not to believe in the kingdom, you know, they're already at, at the outset fighting against the idea that they should submit to our Savior. With that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised whenever we meet unbelievers who are just quick to insist that they don't see any real reason, no matter how well and how good the arguments are. We can present them with all the best evidence in the world. They're just not interested. Because in the foolishness of their own carnal mind, they've already made up their minds. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he asks, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, And Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now just think about that for a moment. The world, through worldly wisdom, does not know God. The people of this world who walk according to worldly wisdom will not know God. Because as they embrace worldly wisdom, they're going to, you know, hear anything about Christ Jesus and the coming kingdom and they're going to think, well, that's foolishness. The carnally minded unbeliever who is walking in the wisdom of this world will be quick to reject the kingdom of Christ. And the reason why is because the carnal mind will always reject any apologetic argument that's in favor of Christ. And instead, they'll embrace any argument that opposes the simple truth of the gospel message. As a result, the unbeliever who embraces the wisdom of this world, they're not able to examine properly the evidence for the kingdom of Christ. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 1. It's there where he declares, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because... Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals 
creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. From this, we can see that the unbeliever who chooses to deny the internal testimony that God has placed within the heart of every person, those who deny that internal testimony about our creator, they end up embracing a faulty faith as they begin to worship the the creature rather than the creator. Rather than you know, setting out to examine the evidence for the kingdom of Christ and rather than embracing our creator, you know, those who are walking according to worldly wisdom will end up embracing anything else that they end up calling God. And it's sad to say that these unbelievers who profess to be wise will typically be quick to reject any apologetic argument that we might present them with because in their mind it's just foolishness. And we can reason with them all day long, but if they've already at the outset decided to reject Jesus Christ, then you can't change their mind until they're ready to repent. And it's sad to say that the enemy is right there to continue to keep them in blindness. As a matter of fact, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where Paul tells us this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age, or in other words, the devil is working overtime in order to blind the eyes of those who are already rejecting the internal testimony that God has given to them. Now they're without excuse because God has revealed this to them within them. They have an internal testimony you know, about their creator, and yet when they, through the wisdom of this world, decide to reject that internal testimony, well, you better believe that the devil is right there to send his demons to blind their eyes, to keep them living in darkness. That being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that unbelievers won't be able to see the evidence for the kingdom of God until they agree to repent and open their spiritual lives so that they can see it. And with that being the case, we need to help them then. We need to help them to examine the evidence for the kingdom by presenting them with the evidence that can be seen in our own faith. We need to present them with the light of the truth so that they might turn from darkness to light and trust in the, in, the, in the king that we've placed our faith in. To explain my point, I would draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 5. There, Paul declares this. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret." But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. 
Christian, listen, the antagonistic unbeliever who, you know, has rejected the internal testimony that God has given to every single person, uh, that person who, who, because of worldly wisdom, rejects what God has revealed to them and, and then ends up being blinded by the God of this age, they will not be able to see the kingdom of Christ until they experience the light of the Lord in the life of those who actually believe. You see, the believer who is walking in the light of the Lord ends up manifesting that light for all to see. And in this way, the obedient believer helps the unbelievers around us to see the kingdom of Christ as we allow them to examine our faith. As we help them to see our faith that we've placed in the king of kings, then there's some light of truth that can help them to turn from darkness to light. And this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the kingdom of Christ is not only embraced by faith and and the kingdom of Christ is not only examined by those who are able to see the light of our faith, but then the kingdom of Christ ends up being experienced by those who are able to see the way that we are walking by faith with our king. And what this is the focus, I want you to make your way back to Luke chapter 17. Here we find the Lord Jesus continuing to address those antagonistic Pharisees. And I want you to look with me here. We'll back up and begin reading at verse 20. Here Luke writes, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's helping his audience to understand that the kingdom is first experienced, not externally through examination, but internally because the kingdom is within us. We actually have to enter into the kingdom in an immaterial sense first before we get to experience the kingdom physically. With that being the case, I want to take some time to consider what the Lord Jesus then was saying when he informed these Pharisees that the kingdom of God is first and foremost within us. And with this as the focus, I should first point out that the word within, it's actually translated from a Greek word which was used to describe something which was already in the midst of something. Uh, For example, I want to consider the, the scholars who created the new international version of the Bible. They render the Greek in this way. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus was informing the Pharisees that the kingdom of God was already in their midst. Uh, And according to the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they tell us that the kingdom of God was already among them. In this sense, it seems to me that the Lord Jesus here was actually referring to his own presence. Seems to me that he's telling these Pharisees, look, (laughs) the kingdom is here in your midst because the king is standing right in front of you. And what this means then is that the first phase of the kingdom was already in full swing because the king of kings was there initiating that first phase. And while it's true that the kingdom of God was already in the midst of those Pharisees there during the days of Christ's earthly ministry, it's also true that the kingdom of God is currently in the midst of us in another sense. 
In order to explain my point, I want to consider something that the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 14. So if you would, let's turn to the 14th chapter of John's gospel account. You see, it's here in John chapter 14 where we find Christ Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that the kingdom of God is currently in the midst of us. And the reason why is because our God is actually dwelling within the bodies of every born-again believer. Let's consider how Jesus put it here in John chapter 14. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 16. Here Jesus declares, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be where? In you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus presenting his disciples with a promise which was pointing to this day when God the Father would send a helper known as the Spirit of Truth, or in other words, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would be sent to take up residence within the body of the born-again believer. That's right, the Lord Jesus promised that at some point in time after his death, his burial, his resurrection, after his ascension into heaven, that God the Father would send the Spirit of Truth to come and indwell those who place their faith in the sacrifice of our Savior. And I should remind you that the Lord Jesus actually restated this promise on the day of his ascension into heaven. As a matter of fact, it's in Acts chapter 1. There, Luke describes that day by writing this. He says, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These guys were brilliant. Is this the time, Lord? Is this the time that you're going to bring in the second phase? Is this the time you're going to usher in the kingdom? Is this the day you're going to set up the throne and we're going to get the Romans out of here? Is this the time? And he's like, didn't you hear what I just said? <laughs> go, go back to Jerusalem and wait, wait for the promise of the Father, right? Verse 7, he says to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In these verses, you know, we find Luke describing the day of our Savior's ascension into heaven. And just before departing, he instructs his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait. He tells them to wait for the fulfillment that uh, he had already uh, promised them from the Father. Remember, it's back in John chapter 14 when he made the promise. The Father's going to send the helper. And just as Jesus promised, it was from this point in time, 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, that's when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon those who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. 
That's when the Holy Spirit began to indwell and empower every born-again believer. And since that day, the Holy Spirit continues to be sent to indwell every born-again believer. And in this way, every believer has effectively become the temple of the living God here on the earth. In order to prove my point, let's consider something that Paul wrote in his book, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. See, it's here in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. This is where we find Paul. He's reminding his readers about the fact that every believer on the planet today has effectively become the temple of the Holy Spirit. With that being the case, you know, Paul also calls us to reflect the reality of this in the way we live our lives. In order to prove my point, look with me here at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would, let's begin reading there at verse 18. Here Paul writes, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christian, listen, you might not know this, but our bodies became the temple of the living God at the very moment when we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the very moment of our salvation, The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and we become the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence within the the spirit of our immaterial hearts. And with that being the case, you know, the born again believer is now being called to live our lives in such a way that the people around us are able to see the glorious light of the Lord emanating from our souls. For this reason that Paul instructs us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So, so think about that. The, 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 the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the helper has come to live within us, to empower us from within so that then we can live a life that, that brings his glory into the lives of the people around us. And while it's true that the Holy Spirit is now indwelling and empowering those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, it's also true that the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ has also taken up uh, you know, uh, residence within us and is now seated upon the throne, the immaterial throne of our heart. That's right. After his ascension into heaven, the infinite logos of our King was restored to the same glory that he had with the Father prior to the incarnation. During the incarnation, the infinite deity of the Logos was contained within the humanity of the the child of Mary. But then after his ascension into heaven, the infinite Logos was restored to the glory that he had with the Father prior to the incarnation. So we can rejoice in knowing that the resurrected humanity of Jesus is seated upon the throne of grace right there in heaven. 
But at the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that the infinite spirit of our Savior is also seated upon the throne of our immaterial heart. That's right, Jesus dwells within the born-again believer. The spirit of Jesus Christ is dwelling within us. And with that being the case, you know, the, the apostle Peter encouraged every Christian to make sure that we sanctify the Lord Jesus in our hearts. And, and that we, we are to make sure that we keep our king at the very center of our soul. To prove my point, let's consider the way that the Apostle Peter put it in his first epistle. So if you would, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 1 Peter, I just want to take a moment to point out that those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus have essentially and effectively become a, a, a throne for the Lord Jesus here in this world. Now, that, now there's coming a day when our risen Lord will return with his millennial kingdom and he will establish a literal throne right there in Jerusalem. He will rule and reign over the planet for a thousand years from the throne of King David. And we look forward to that second phase of his kingdom. But today, Christian, we are the throne of Jesus Christ. We have become his throne from which the king of kings can make an impact on the world around us. And with that being the case, Peter challenges the believer to make sure that we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts so that everyone else knows that the king of kings lives within us. Let's consider how Peter puts it here in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me there at verse 15, here the apostle declares, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle Peter, he's encouraging every born-again believer to make sure that we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Or in other words, you might put it like this, make sure that King Jesus continues to remain seated upon the throne in your heart. Make sure that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the very center of your soul and live accordingly. And as we allow the Lord Jesus to lead us according to his perfect will, you know, the unbelievers around us begin to experience the kingdom of God in our lives as they see the way that we subject ourselves to our Savior, King Jesus. And as they look and see the way we live for the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to have questions. They're going to want to, you know, have an understanding of why it is that we have peace when the rest of the world has no peace. Why we have joy when everybody else is so upset. Why we have faith when everyone else is filled with fear. Why we have hope when everything else seems so hopeless. When the unbelievers around us begin to see that we have peace and, and, and faith and hope and joy, and they're going to come with questions. Why? Why is your heart filled with hope when everything is so, so bad? 
And that's when Peter says, be ready to give a defense. Be ready to give an apologetic. Be ready to give an argument for the hope that you have. And to present it with gentleness and respect. But we should be ready to give that apologetic that argument for why we have joy in Jesus, for why we have faith when everybody else is afraid, for why we have hope when everything seems so hopeless. Now, at the same time, it's important to understand that if nobody's coming to you with questions, well, why is that? If the unbelievers in your life aren't coming and saying, why do you have faith when I'm afraid? Why do you have joy when I'm so upset? Why? If nobody's coming to you with those questions, then why? Do they not see the light of the Lord in your life? Because according to Peter, when they see the light of the Lord, as we sanctify the Lord in our hearts, the people around us are going to come and say, hey, why, why are you different? Why, why, why do you have faith? Why are you filled with hope? And if they aren't asking then the question is, are you really sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts? If they're not coming and wanting to know why you're different, is it possible that you're just the same? In order for the unbelievers around us to examine the kingdom of God, they need to see the kingdom in our lives. They need to see the glorious light of the Lord emanating from our lives. And with that, I encourage you, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Make sure that Jesus Christ is the king who is seated upon the throne of your heart. And in this way, his light will shine forth from our lives. And the unbelievers around us will want to know why. Christian, listen, the Lord is calling us to help others to enter the kingdom. And with this as the goal, it's crucial for every Christian to live a life of subjection to our Savior. Submitting our lives to Christ, our King, so that then we can help others to see the kingdom, which is already in our midst. And as we live our lives in submission to the King of Kings, then we can help others around us to to see the kingdom that's in our midst. And we can help them to understand that the kingdom of Christ is first embraced by faith. The kingdom of Christ is also examined by faith. And finally, the kingdom of Christ is experienced by those who will place their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And With all that being the case, I encourage you, Christian, let's continue to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Let's make sure that King Jesus is seated where he belongs, which is smack dab in the center of our soul. And as we make sure that the Lord Jesus is seated upon the throne of our hearts, then we, by his power, can help others to see how they too can enter the everlasting kingdom of Christ. Let's pray.